I was thinking this morning when I was over in the, uh, in the gym where all the kids are hanging out, having fun, I was reminiscing in my mind about some of the games I used to play in school when I was a kid, and I actually made a short list of some that were really popular when I was a kid. Uh, you'll hopefully remember them. There are about a thousand different iterations of tag. Uh, my personal favorite was what we called cartoon tag. Cartoon tag was when you were being chased by the person who was it, you had to shout out the name of your favorite cartoon before they touched you and then you were safe. If you ever played that one. Uh, Duck, Duck, Goose was a classic. Is there anyone here who's never played Duck, Duck, Goose? Fuck. You've never played my own father. That's it. Come on, we're going to play right now. Bob has a good, good excuse. He grew up on the East Coast and so they probably have a whole different set of games over there. Uh, yeah, Bob's like, no. We're from the East Coast. We work. We don't play games over there. Uh, red light, green light. We played red light, green light as a kid. Uh, that one was always a classic. Uh, my wife just told me, I don't know how the subject came up, that uh, in a staff meeting at work the other day, they actually played heads up, seven up. You remember that game? I don't even remember how it works. I just remember going like this, and apparently I wasn't one of the cool kids because no one ever touched my thumb. Uh, I, uh, I remember that one. Uh, but I'm surely all of us have played Simon Says. Is there anyone who's never played Simon Says before? Uh, okay, well, let's give it a shot. I'm going to have, uh, let's say, everyone who's under the age of 21 is going to play Simon Says right now, okay? Uh, okay, so if you're under the age of 21, just raise your hand for me real quick. Oh, you guys are terrible at this game. You guys are awful. Okay, let's, let's try that again. Stand up. Yes, you did it. You nailed it. Okay. Oh, Jacob. I didn't say Simon Says. Uh, I tell you what, though. Uh, Jacob, just so you don't go away humiliated, I have a Starbucks gift card for you. Because you are first place of the people who don't know how to play Simon Says. Okay, just so we, just so we know how Simon, says work, how Simon Says works. Simon Says, stand up. There it is. Okay, good. You guys do know how to do it. Okay, great job. Sit down. Okay, three people left. You guys are awesome. Um, I, uh, I'm done with this game. This game's over. Good job. Three people survived. Way to go. They played Simon Says. Simon Says, you can sit down. Dang it. None of them, none of them bid on that last one either. They're all smart. Uh, yeah, it's such a classic game. And it was so fun if you remember playing it in grade school in your class. Like, you really wanted to win. Like, you just felt so awesome if you could be, you know, if you could win. You could be the last person. You know, it's really a game of trickery, like it's sort of sadistic in that kind of, kind of way, I guess. I just find it interesting how like if, if we're playing Simon Says and Simon is giving us instructions, that's awesome. But then when the game's over and the teacher gave us instructions, that wasn't that awesome. Or like as an adult, there's nothing worse than having someone tell you what to do. Uh, we, were at, we were downtown at Hoop Fest the other day and... Uh, there, you know, there's courts everywhere, and there's lines everywhere, and you can't really tell what's what. And I was standing like literally this far onto the edge of a court, but there was no game happening. It was in between games, and this guy who's a court monitor comes by, and he's like, you're standing on that court right there. And I was like so offended. <laughs> and I'm just going to confess to you right now, I, in less than polite words, I said, yeah, well, there's not a game happening right now, so it's okay. Uh, I kind of said it like that, super snooty, please forgive me. Uh, but it's because, like, I just, if he was Simon, it would be okay, but, you know, I just don't like to be told what to do. I think as adults, you ever been, like, in line somewhere, and someone who works there who's maybe, like, 30 years younger than you tells you what to do, and there's this thing in you that's like, no, don't tell me what to do. Back off, Junior. Stand down, right? You get that feeling? 
But then like two minutes later, after you're done being offended, you're like, actually, they were just doing their job. <laughs> actually, they were just telling me what I'm supposed to do. I hope that never happens to you. Maybe I'm just having therapy right now. Uh, but as adults, we don't like to be told what to do. Uh, when you're a kid, it's like, Simon's cool, but mom tells me what to do. It's not as cool. Or teacher tells me what to do. When you're an adult, it's like, uh, Simon says it's probably pretty cool. We'd even get along for that game in the right context. But when the boss tells me what to do, or the government tells me what to do, or the speed limit sign tells me what to do, some of you thought you were really good followers, rule followers, that pulled out the speed limit thing. <laughs> then we just, there's something that, you know, we just don't, don't love to be told what to do. What happens when God tells you what to do? I have an internal, even like subliminal, subversive reaction when I'm told what to do. Uh, and I just wonder, like, is that same thing happening in my heart when God tells me what to do? Uh, do I have a similar type of response? Do I respond defensively to God, maybe sometimes without even necessarily knowing it? Uh, it underscores the problem that we have when we view the Bible as a rule book. Because I don't like to be told what to do. I like to choose for myself. It underscores the problem that we have when we view church as a place we go to be told what to do. Uh, it creates this reaction. If we view the Bible as a book of God says do this, then there's really only a few possible ways that we could react to it. We could feel guilty because we're not doing what it says, uh, or we could feel very self-righteous and uh, kind of smug because we think we are doing what it says, or we could be totally indifferent. Uh, but whether you feel guilty or you feel arrogant or you feel indifferent to it, one thing is certain. If you think the Bible is a rule book, you're not going to read it. It's not going to have any impact in your life because you're not going to pay any attention to it because we don't like rules. Uh, I have good news for you. It's not a rule book. But if you view it that way, and one possibility is that you're going to feel guilty, well, no one wants to feel guilty. And if one possibility is that you're arrogant because you think you're nailing it, well, then why would you read it? And of course, if you're indifferent, you're not going to pay any attention to it. That's what happens when we view it as a rule book. So last week, you might remember this if you were here, the, the big idea was from Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. It was this, that spiritual connection and spiritual power in our lives come from believing, not doing. Uh, God's presence in our lives, our connection relationally to Him and uh, seeing Him at work in our lives, that connection and power come from believing. They come from faith, not from keeping the rules. They come from believing, not doing. Now, if the Bible's a rule book, that makes no sense, right? Because if the Bible's a rule book, then it's all about doing. Doing is all there is. But if the Bible is the story of God's love for His people, if it's the story of who He is and what He's up to, then it's a lot more interesting than just simply a rule book. Then it's much more important to the way I view myself and my life and my family and the way I view my spot in the world. Last week we talked about being part of a postmodern society. Uh, in postmodernism, we basically, we basically don't, as a society, believe that there is concrete black and white. Uh, this is right, this is wrong. Really what we adhere to is the idea of relativistic moralism. You do you, I'll do me, what's good for you is good for you. Let's don't tell each other what to do. But do you know that that's actually a doctrinal position also? Uh, whether you believe in absolute right and wrong or you believe in individual moralism, uh, either way, it's a doctrinal position. And my point is that everyone is banking by faith on something. Everyone's banking by faith on something. It's still a faith-based Position. No matter what you believe about life, death, eternity, 
about the, the meaning of life, about why you're here, no matter what you believe about that, it's still a doctrinal position. Everybody has one. So today, I'm going to hope that we can learn just a little bit more about what the Bible is and what role it might have in our lives and how it can actually help us understand who we are, what it means to us, how it shapes those personal doctrines that we all live by, and how we should understand the Bible and apply it to our lives. So here's step square, square one. I guess I'll call this ground zero, kind of a big idea that we can begin with, and that's this, that the Bible is God's self-disclosure of himself and his love for his people. That the Bible is not a rule book, it's his self-disclosure of himself and his love for his people. That's, that's the position that I just want to start from. Uh, what I don't want to do is what's called an apologetic uh, An apologetic is where you kind of go down through the historical evidences and uh, some internal and external evidences and talk about why the Bible is trustworthy. We've done that before. Uh, there's thousands of really great resources out there uh, on that topic, but uh, I don't want to go from that point. Today, I just want to look internally at some of the things that the Bible says about itself and about God. So let's just start with this verse that's probably familiar to a lot of you. It's right at the top of your card, 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible is useful. It has an actual use in your life. So if when I say the word Bible, you think of like a 40-pounder that was on your grandma's coffee table that you used as a coaster as a kid, uh, you should know that it's actually useful for some things besides just holding your TV dinner. Uh, It will do a whole bunch of other things. Uh, How much time and energy do I spend in life on things that aren't useful? Um, Wow, a lot, probably. Uh, The Bible is useful because, of course, for one simple reason, because it is God-breathed. What does that that mean? Uh, When you're speaking, you're breathing out. It is from God. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, I know that you came here hoping to learn a really deep theological term that you could use to impress someone. Uh, I'm going to give you one of those, and my guess is you will probably likely never hear it and probably never say it again in your life, and it is this, plenary verbal inspiration. This is the uh, theological term that we assign to how God gave his words to humans. You don't need to write that down. You don't need to remember it. It will not be useful to you ever again. Uh, but here's, uh, here's what it means. If you didn't, uh, you don't need to go to seminary now, by the way. I just saved you 60 grand. You're welcome. <laughs> Plenary verbal inspiration doesn't mean that God like dictated the words of the Bible audibly to someone and they wrote it down. What it means is that God inspired in the hearts and minds of human authors what he wanted it to say. Now that's the idea of plenary verbal inspiration. So what kinds of things does it say? Our primary text will be in Psalm chapter 19. If you've got a Bible handy, you can flip there. If you've got a device, uh, that's where we're going to be at. I wish we could go through the whole chapter because it's pretty amazing stuff, uh, but we're, we're going to chop it up a little bit. Very first verse, verse 1, Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They, have, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Without speaking a word, creation declares a glorious song about the existence of God. That's the big idea of of those verses. Without a word being spoken, creation declares the glory of God. 
In fact, the Bible says that creation declares God's glory so clearly, according to Romans 1.20, it says that God's qualities are so evident just by looking around you at the world that no one will have an excuse to say, I didn't know there was a God. It says it's, it's that clear just by looking at creation that people are without excuse. Everywhere you go in all the earth, think about this, people look up at the same sky with wonder. Uh, remember that friend you had, that best friend that moved away when you were a kid, and you have no idea where they're at or what they're doing, you kind of lost touch, and you think, oh man, I wonder what they're up to right now. Every night they look up at the same sky, and they think, man, I wonder how big that is, I wonder how far that goes. We all look at the vastness of it with the same wonder. Verse 4 says, in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Everywhere on the planet, in fact, everywhere in our solar system, the sun reaches. All over the world, every moment of every day, there's a sunrise. There's one happening right here, right now. And if you've ever seen a sunrise, which probably all of us have, you know that it's not just something you see, it's also something you experience. You know there's a certain type of tranquility that happens only early in the morning as the sun is just beginning to dawn. You know that there's a certain type of freshness, a type of peace, a type of calm that only happens in the morning. It doesn't happen at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when the sun is just dominating everything. Uh, it only happens early in the morning. We all, we all know that. And the Bible says that the sunrise declares God's glory. That's what it exists for. The Bible tells us the meaning of creation, the role of creation. When we look out, whether it's sunrise, whether it's the stars, whether it's the mountain, whether it's the seas, the role of creation is to declare God's glory. And that includes you. That's your function. You are a declaration of God's glory. So, you know, if you're thinking, I'm just me, I'm just me doing my thing in the world. Uh, I just, you know, I have really no part. I'm just kind of a small piece in a vast ocean. That's wrong. You are a declaration of God's glory. There's not another one that's like you. I know it's weird to think of yourself that way, but you are a declaration of God's glory. That sensation that we have, that we all experience at sunrise, even if we don't identify it as God's glory, we all know the sense, that peaceful sense, that sense of wonder when we look up at the stars in the sky, everyone understands that. So the first section, first blanks there on your card are this. The Bible clarifies things most people experience but can't explain. The Bible clarifies the things that most experience, things like the sunrise, but can't explain why it is the way it is. Why do I have this sense of tranquility right now at sunrise, but I don't have it in the middle of the day? The Bible explains those things because it's a declaration of God's glory. It's one of all kinds of different things. But not, are there, not only are there universal experiences that the Bible explains as it, that help us understand God, there are also universal beliefs that we all share, uh, but don't necessarily understand them, and the Bible explains them. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 it says, indeed, when Gentiles, and we use the word Gentiles, uh, that by definition, it means people who are not ethnically Jewish, but it also means people who are not Jewish by belief. Uh, so we could say people who don't have the word of God, people who don't know God. That's, that's what he's meaning as he's writing to a Jewish audience. Indeed, when Gentiles, people who don't know God, 
who do not have the law, the Old Testament, who do not, indeed when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have it. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. People who don't know God, who don't know the Bible, don't understand what it means to be a Christian, uh, they still share some of the same standards that we do. They still have some of God's law, as Paul uses uh, the term he uses in Romans. They still have that written on their hearts, he says. No matter how much we fight for individualism, uh, we live in one of the most individualistic societies in the history of the world. No matter how much we fight for that, there are still certain things that we all agree on. Uh, certain standards that, we, that almost everyone around the world throughout history universally agrees on. So, for example, I have a neighbor, a uh, really nice guy, not a Christian, uh, not spiritual to my knowledge in any way, not even like, a, a, you know, religious in like an obligatory kind of way. Uh, he, uh, he, he's not a Christian at all. So what if he came over and, uh, and I said, hey, uh, can, I, can I borrow a, a tool from you? Can I, can I borrow that hammer from you? And uh, he, uh, he lent it to me. And then like a month later, he came over and said, hey, can I get my hammer back? And I said, nah, I think I'm just going to keep it. It's my hammer now. Um, he would be angry, right? Because everyone knows stealing is wrong. Even people who do it know that it's wrong. It's a universal belief. We all, we all get that. Uh, or if, let's say I loaned him my hammer and I showed up at his front door and he's not a Christian and I knocked on the door and said, hey, uh, can I get my hammer back? And uh, he said, no, you know, I think I'm actually just going to keep it. It's not your hammer anymore. The only reason you think that is because of your Judeo-Christian background, he would never say that. No one says that. Because even if you don't have a Judeo-Christian background, you still know it's wrong to steal. No one, no one thinks that's okay. It's a universal, universal belief. He might not be able to put his finger on why he believes that it's wrong in the same way that I understand that it's because God has written it on my heart. He's written it on my conscience. He might not understand why, but he still believes it. And in this way, the Bible defines things that most believe but don't understand. The next blank on your card. It defines some of those things that are universal beliefs that even people who aren't Christians believe, they're convictions, but they don't necessarily have a why. The Bible gives us the why for our universal beliefs. The Word of God gives us reason for many of our common convictions. Both David in the Psalms and Paul, in Romans, are making this point. The story of God and the story of his love for his creation is being written all throughout everything that he's made, including on your heart. The story of God is being written everywhere you look, even on your heart, and the Bible explains that. If without turning to the scripture, you would never know. You would believe these things, you would observe these things, but you wouldn't have a reason. You wouldn't have a why. There's just one problem. Just one area in which it comes up short is that these nonverbal communications about God, about his nature and about his design, they don't tell us about Jesus. They tell us in nature a glimpse of God's glory. We can certainly look around at the universe and say, wow, if God made all this, he must be amazing. And we can certainly experience having a conscience and understand a glimpse of God's holiness, how perfect God is, 
These things tell us some stuff about the power of God and about uh, you know, some, some power that's out there beyond what we can see and explain, but they don't tell us how to align ourselves with Him. They tell me something about God, but they don't tell me how I can know Him. Only the Scripture, only Jesus tells us how we can know Him. So I want to just go back to Psalm 19. I wish we had time to go through the whole chapter, uh, but we're just going to go right to the end, verse 12, and this is what it says. It says, but who can discern their own errors? Who can understand their own mistakes? Uh, Safe to say all of us have a blind spot in some way. Who can understand their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. He understands, okay, there are ways in which I'm wrong that I don't understand. There are ways in which I'm wrong that it's just because I'm a broken person. But there's also things that I know I shouldn't do and I do anyway. There's also attitudes I know I shouldn't have, but I have anyway. He says, forgive me for both. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So he's, he's asking God to forgive him, both for the sins that, uh, for the offenses he's committed that he knew were wrong, but also the things that... I don't know the things, the ways in which I think I'm right, but I'm, but I'm not. Now, let me ask you this question. David lived a thousand years roughly before Jesus. And of course, if you're familiar with the narrative of the Bible, Jesus is the only way. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's uh, wrath against our sin. He paid the bill for us, but he hasn't lived at this point. So how can David ask for forgiveness at this point? The answer is because David could look at creation, and he could look at the conscience, and more importantly, he could look back at the Old Testament law, and he could see that it all pointed toward a coming Savior. He could see that it pointed toward Jesus even before Jesus, and the answer, the evidence of that is in the very last word of Psalm 19, where he calls out for his Redeemer, his Savior. It's all pointing toward Jesus. Even David could see that the Redeemer was coming, that someone was coming to purchase him out of slavery to sin. Now, he didn't have a clear picture of that like we do, because we have a documented historical Jesus to look at. David didn't have that, but he knew by faith that a Savior was coming. And Jesus, interestingly, is the only one who actually perfectly kept God's law. He was the only one who was actually able to do it. And he's the one who paid for David's sin, who paid for your sin. How crazy is that? The only one who actually kept the law is the one who paid the penalty for you and for me. The subversive ones, the ones that you do just by way of being a broken human with difficult experiences and uh, you know, the ways that we react because something in our past that this person had nothing to do with, something in our past kind of sort of pricked an old wound and I react to them unkindly. Uh, the things I do subversively like that, but also the things that I know I shouldn't do. The things that God has clearly said, don't go that way, and I go there anyway. Jesus also paid for those, and if you've read the story, you know David had some doozies. Uh, if you're just looking for a way to compare yourself to someone and think, yeah, I'm a good person, David might be a good place to start, uh, but he understood my Savior is coming. Salvation is not in my ability to follow the rule book. Last week, uh, We talked about putting our faith in the finished work of Christ, the redeemer of our souls. When David did that, 
The scripture was no longer a rule book to him. That was, that was the key to bringing the Bible alive, the story of God's God and his people. Uh, no longer viewing it as a rule book, when he understood that a redeemer is coming and all of this is pointing toward my savior, he could actually see the Bible for what it is, the story of God reconciling all creation, including you, including me, back to himself. And Jesus had something to say that I just want to kind of wrap up with to people who viewed the Bible as a rule book. Uh, I think for all of us, we have a tendency to do this uh, in some small way. Uh, we like to say, I don't like rules. Like, don't fence me in, right? Do I want to let me do my own gym? But have you noticed, like, historically, if you just look back at history, everywhere people went when they went into, like, a new world, they sort of immediately set up a society with rules. Uh, or, like, if you go camping, you kind of, like, immediately set up this structure, like, this is our camp, this is where these go, this is where the tent goes. Like, we like rules, okay? I mean, you might not think you like rules, you like rules. Uh, we, all, we all have some need for structure. Now, my wife needs a lot more structure than me, because she's got the calendar next to the bed and the checklist, and, like, I can roll with it a little bit more than that, but we like, we like rules. Uh, this is a dangerous thing when it comes to the Bible. And Jesus had something really interesting to say to people who kind of view God as like the big Simon up in the sky, right? They just thought he was up there like exercising his trickery to try and trip them up. Oh, I didn't say Simon says. People, people view it that way, particularly the group of people that he was talking to in his time. This is what it says in John 5, verse 39. Speaking to a group of highly religious people, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that by following the rules, you'll gain God's blessing. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Isn't that interesting? All these people were working so hard to keep the rules, and Jesus says, actually, they're all just pointing toward me, and if you just come to me, it's your free gift. You can have it. You can have eternal life, and isn't it so amazing? Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, isn't it so amazing that it's free? And so this is what I want to encourage you with. Uh, if, it's, if it's been rules to you, or maybe you grew up in an environment where you know, someone that you viewed as a spiritual authority had a heavy hand, I want to give you permission to set that down. Set that down. And Jesus said, all of these scriptures are pointing toward me. You can have eternal life just by putting your faith in me. So I always want to make sure that every person I ever have the chance to talk about faith with understands really this, this big idea about the Bible. And Jesus said it really clearly. The point of the Bible is not to show you the rules. The point of the entire Bible, from the first page to the last, the point is to steer you toward faith in Jesus. That's what the entire thing, Old Testament and New Testament, is about. Think about it this way. The very first story in the Bible, Adam and Eve. They're there in the garden. God says, hey, this is the ground rules. Actually, there's only one ground rule, singular. Adam can't uphold the standard. And through his sin, death enters the world. How does that pertain to Jesus? Because Jesus came in and did uphold the law. And through it, life came back into the world. Fast forward a few years. Abraham, the father of all Jews, uh, he, God, God says, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Wow, what a big command. And he follows along, and as he's about to do it, God stops him, and he says, you know what? Stop. I know that you love me because you didn't withhold your son. How does that point to Jesus? Well, I think that one's easier to see, because God said, you know that I love you 
because I didn't withhold my son from you. How about David and Goliath? Maybe the most well-known story in the Bible. What's the representation there? This teenager, this, you know, just a shepherd boy, David walks out and takes on Goliath, the biggest, baddest problem that all the Israelites have. And by the way, the entire Israelite army cannot stand up to him. How does that point to Jesus? Because Jesus came and he defeated your greatest problem and your greatest enemy in sin and death for you. All of it, all of it points to Jesus. When you were powerless to take on your Goliath, Jesus did it for you. The Bible is all about Jesus. And that's your last blank if you really love those fill in the blanks. The Bible is all about Jesus, the whole thing. If you'll watch for it, you'll see actually in the Old Testament, 3,000, 4,000 years before Jesus, this is actually talking about him. This is amazing. This has very little to do with me keeping the rules. It has everything to do with the one who's going to come and keep the rules for me. Aren't you glad it's not a rule book? I am so glad that it's not a rule book. Uh, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're going to take a few minutes and we're going to sing just a couple of songs in response to what God has already done. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to pray. They're going to sing. God, thank you so much that you haven't given us a whole bunch of rules that we can't keep up, but rather you've given a demonstration of your love for us. Thank you that at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Thank you that the demonstration of your love is that when we were still powerless to change, when we were still dead in our sin, you didn't wait for us to start following the rules, but you came and died for us to pay the bill on our behalf. And no matter how much righteousness we could possibly pile up through good behavior, it's all garbage compared to your righteousness, which is a free gift. So Lord, I pray that you would just receive our praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.